many people are asking the question, does God exist? Or is there a God? And one can certainly discuss that question at length. But it does seem to me that it makes much more sense, first of all, to ask the question, who is God? The content that people give to the word God has varied and does vary enormously. And so one has to ask, what kind of God are you actually talking about? What God? Or who is God? In biblical times, this was the obvious question. Very few people thought there was nothing to which one could apply the term God or, or the divine. But which God? Which of the many purported gods is truly God? Who is the God you are talking about? This was the key question, and I think still is. Even though all notions of the divine do have something in common, as Christians, we would want to give priority to those key events and experiences that the Bible relates and expounds as the revelation of God. We can answer the question, who is God, only by attending to who God has revealed himself to be. And of course, we could take the whole Bible as revelation of God, and if I were asked what the whole Bible is about, I would say it is most centrally about the identity of God, and at the same time, it tells the story of God and his creation, the world, that all-encompassing story extending from the creation to the new creation at the end that we can call the biblical meta-narrative. But within that large story, there are key moments of revelation that, as it were, define who God is for us. Or it would be better to say moments in which God defines who God is for us. These are not merely moments that are narrated once within the biblical story. They are more like reference points to which the rest of scripture constantly refers back. They are moments that reverberate through the whole story. Moreover, like all events of great significance, their significance is not grasped all at once and forever. They are moments whose meaning is never exhausted. So we should read them as events pregnant with meaning, pointing us finite creatures of God to God's inexhaustible and mysterious identity. They should challenge our understanding of God and our own relationship with God, for as J.B. Phillips once rather famously said, our God is too small. The key moments of revelation we shall reflect on in these lectures are not the only such moments. In a longer series, I could certainly include others. And I don't have a defined list of the key moments. But the ones I want to consider in these three days are undoubtedly among the most significant. And we begin this evening with what has been called the revelation of revelations, God's revelation of his name to um, Moses at the burning bush on Mount Sinai. But before looking at the narrative in Exodus chapter 3, I, I need to say something about the way I refer to the divine name. Because I follow the old Jewish practice of not pronouncing the name 
Jesus and the first Christians and the New Testament writers all followed this practice. And so I think we should do too. In fact, we can't be entirely certain how it was pronounced. In the Hebrew Bible, where it occurs more than 6,800 times, it consists of four Hebrew letters. There they are, yod Hey vav Hey. As you probably know, vowels were not written in ancient Hebrew. So we just have the four consonants. And it's sometimes called the tetragrammaton, which just means four letters. Because Jewish people came to think that the sacred name should not be pronounced, substitutes for it developed. The usual one, which Jews would use when reading scripture, and still do today in Hebrew, is the word Adonai, meaning Lord. Strictly speaking, it means my lords. It's kind of reverential plural. And most English translations of the Old Testament follow the Jewish practice, and they represent the divine name by the English words, the Lord. But they put the word Lord in uppercase letters when it's representing the divine name, so that we can tell that those are the cases where it does represent the divine name. And of course, there are other cases where the Lord is in uh, lowercase letters and is just the ordinary word Lord. I'll say more later on about the practice of using substitutes for the name, but that's, I think, enough to give you the idea of how I'm referring to the name. So as we turn to the account of the revelation of the name in Exodus 3, there's just one other thing I have to explain to you, and that is that I first gave the original versions of these lectures in Ethiopia, in the Ethiopian Graduate School of Theology in Addis Ababa. And for those lectures, I selected a lot of um, illustrations from Ethiopian church art. And I love Ethiopian church art. And I looked back at them and I thought, You'll enjoy these too. So I've kept all the illustrations from Ethiopia. I hope you appreciate them. So we're now in Exodus 3, and I'm sure you know the story. But I want us to look at some parts of the text in some detail. So you'll remember this is about um, Moses um, before the Exodus. Moses has to get away from Egypt, and he's become a shepherd looking after the flocks of his father-in-law in Midian. And Exodus chapter 4 starts like this. Chapter 3 starts like this. Um, that's that one. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why this bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here am I. Then he said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, 
for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, in comparison with many other encounters with God that the Old Testament relates, this one has some remarkable features. It's the angel of the Lord who appears to Moses, but that is not unusual. Frequently, in the early books of the Bible, when the figure of the angel of the Lord appears, the angel is not just a messenger of God, but virtually the presence of God himself on earth. The angel's presence is God's presence, and what the angel says, God says. You can gather that quite easily from the narrative. But how he appears in this case is remarkable. He appears in a flame of fire in a bush. The bush is blazing, it looks as though it's on fire, but the fire does not consume it. We'll come back to the meaning of that form of appearance, but notice for the moment that there's nothing at all like that in the rest of the Bible. This is a unique form of theophany. Then Moses is told to remove his sandals because the ground is holy. Holy, no doubt, because of the presence of God. One striking thing about this is that if one were reading through the Bible from the beginning, this is the first time one would encounter the word holy. The word holy does not appear in Genesis. But starting here, it occurs frequently in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the rest of the Pentateuch. This is an indication, perhaps, that God's special relationship with his people, his holy people, made holy by his presence among them, begins here. The point is reinforced by the fact that Moses is required to acknowledge the holiness of God's presence. Only on one other occasion in the Bible is someone told to remove their shoes because the ground is holy. That's when the commander of the heavenly army appears to Joshua in chapter 5 of the book of Joshua. Probably people went barefoot when they entered the tabernacle and the temple, but we're never actually told that in the Old Testament. It was a common custom in the ancient Near East, still practiced, of course, by Muslims who take off their shoes when they enter mosques. And it's probably just taken for granted in the biblical accounts of the temple. But here in Exodus 3, the angel of the Lord tells Moses to remove his sandals because the ground is holy. So here begins, as it were, the story of God's holy presence with his people. Finally, in the passage we read, notice how God introduces himself. He is the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He had not appeared to the patriarchs in this way, but he is the same God who called Abraham and made his still unfulfilled promises to the ancestors of the people of Israel. He goes on to tell Moses, and I'll just summarize the text here, 
that God has observed the miserable circumstances of the people of Israel in Egypt, and he's heard their prayers imploring his help. The people and Moses himself might well have supposed that the God of their fathers had forgotten them, disowned them. But no, he intends to free the people from Egypt and to give them the land of Canaan, and Moses is to be his agent. Moses protests. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and you shall be the sign, and, and, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses is not satisfied. He said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Why should the Israelites need to know the name of their ancestor's God? Why isn't it enough? Why isn't it enough to know that he's the God of their forefathers? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, they live in a world in which gods have names. All around them in Egypt live people who invoke the Egyptian gods, Ra, Osiris, Isis, Horus, and so forth. To call on one of these gods for favor, one had to distinguish one from another by their names. Gods were no use unless you could call on them by name. There may even have been a sense that to know a god's name was to have some kind of power to make the god respond. So if the god who sent Moses was really going to help them, the Israelites needed a name to use to call on him. So Moses asks what name he can give them. And God's answers to this question are what we're most interested in in this lecture. God actually answers Moses three times and in three stages. He said to Moses, I will be who I will be. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I will be has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my appellation for all generations. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the divine name, that's our English representation of the divine name, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have given heed to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. Now, the writer has carefully set out God's answer in three marked stages. God said, he said further, he also said. The three distinct introductions to God's words distinguish three stages of God's answer that we are evidently that are evidently to be carefully distinguished. They give a certain solemnity to the account. 
each of the three stages should be taken seriously in its own right. And we may notice that it's only at the third stage that God actually answers Moses' question, that he actually gives Moses what he asked for, a name. God's first answer to Moses certainly does not give a name. On the contrary, it looks very much like a refusal to give a name. You can see there the three Hebrew words. Eche, asher, eche. What exactly is meant by them has been much debated, partly because the Hebrew words can have either a present or future meaning. Either I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or even I will be who I am, or variations. Most of the English translations go for I am who I am, which is probably how the words have most often been understood in the past. But it seems to me the majority of scholars now favor the future meaning, I will be who I will be. And one reason for that is, is the if the context, as we've seen, is about what God is going to do. He's going to send Moses and deliver the people. And in fact, God has already, in his answer to Moses' first question, used that word echye with future meaning when he said, I will be with you. So the context suggests that future meaning, but also parallels to this particular linguistic construction, suggests an idiom that has future reference. For example, in Exodus 16.23, God tells the Israelites what to do with the manna. And he says literally, bake what, will, bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. Um, sorry, uh, uh, bake what you will bake and boil as much as you want to boil. Or in Ezekiel 12.25, God says, I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be fulfilled. It means something like, I'll say whatever I choose to say, or whatever I decide to say. So the idiom is about having and making a free choice. Bake as much as you want to bake. I will say what I choose to say. So what God says to Moses here is, I will be whoever I choose to be. I'm free to be who I choose to be. In more technical language, we might say that God is utterly self-determining. He can't be constrained by anything other than himself. He can say who he is and who he will be only by reference to himself, not by reference to anything else. He is who he chooses to be. Now, another reason I'm convinced of this interpretation is that it coheres with the symbolism of the burning bush. The fire blazes, but it doesn't consume the bush. Any other fire burns stuff up because it feeds on what it consumes. It can only go on burning while there is stuff it can consume then it goes out. But the fire in the bush is self-sustaining. It doesn't need fuel. It blazes as it chooses. So God is self, 
subsistent and self-determining. He will be who he chooses to be. So it sounds as though God is refusing to be named. A name would tie him down. It would put him at the beck and call of anyone who knows his name. Names define and limit and constrain. And if that's... Uh, and if that's why the Israelites want to know God's name, so that they can call him to their aid like some genie in a lamp, then he will not be named. But notice, God has in fact in this narrative already told Moses something about what he will be. I will be with you. So God in his free self-determination does commit himself. He can and does give promises that he will keep. God commits himself. But God commits himself. That's the point. No one else commits him. Um, this explains, um, we need to go back to that one, I think. Um, uh, the second stage of God's answer to Moses. Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I will be, has sent me to you. What he does here is to summarize his self-declaration. He condenses the three words, into one word, and he uses that one word utterly ungrammatically as though it were a name. Moses is to say, I will be, has sent me. It means that the one who cannot be constrained, even by Israel's cries for help, commits himself to a course of action for Israel's sake. It means that the one who cannot be constrained the self-determining one determines himself to be Israel's saviour, the one who is sending Moses. By using the statement of his freedom to be who he chooses in the way he does here, making it function like a name in a statement of commitment, God declares himself to be the God who himself has chosen in his grace and his love to be Israel's God. It's a name that expresses his loving commitment to Israel, but cannot be used to constrain or control him. So only now in the third stage of his answer to Moses does God give himself a real name. Then you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Now, if you look again at the Hebrew, um, you'll see that the name looks and sounds like the verb eche, I will be. Three of its four letters are of the, the consonants in the word Ehe. And so it looks as though it ought to be another, uh, it looks as though the name ought to be another form of the verb to be. And some scholars argue that it is, that it means he is or he will be, 
although this form is not actually attested in any Hebrew that we have. That's conjectural, and I want to stress that it's conjectural. We do not really know what the divine name means, if it means anything in the ordinary sense. What seems much clearer is that there is a play on words between Ehyeh and the divine name. Often in the Old Testament, when a personal name is explained, a child is born and his mother calls him such and such because, what we get is not a true etymology. It's not what the name really means linguistically, but a play on words. The name is explained by a word that sounds rather like it. So it doesn't really matter whether the divine name actually derives from the verb to be. What matters is that God first uses, I will be, as though it were a name, and then associates his personal name with that usage by a play on words. So the two stages of God's answer to Moses that precede the giving of the actual personal name make it clear that what is expressed in the giving of the name is this. It does not negate God's self-determination. It doesn't reduce him to being Israel's God, a God who serves Israel's purposes, a tribal demigod. But it does mean that in his grace, in the freedom of his love, God has committed himself to Israel and chosen to be Israel's God. And it seems he has done so irrevocably. This is my name forever. This is my appellation for all generations. Giving himself a name means that the people, on, the people of Israel can call on him by name. Not that they could control him, but that they can address him, appeal to his love and his loyalty. The name creates a relationship in which he will be their God and they will be his people. So although the name is given at a specific juncture of history where God commits himself to the Exodus, the name also looks forward to all the subsequent history of, God's, of, of Israel's relationship with this God, Israel's God. This one is not Ethiopian, it's by the Jewish artist Mark Chagall. I don't have time to say much about the use of the divine name in the rest of the Old Testament. It occurs more than 6,800 6, times, nearly 7,000 times in the Hebrew Bible. And it has plausibly been said to constitute the center of Old Testament theology. The importance of the name does not lie in its meaning. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it seem that people are thinking about the meaning of the name, the linguistic meaning. We shouldn't get distracted into that. It's not what matters. The importance of the name is that it stands for the identity of the God who bears it. And that's what personal names do. They identify someone and point to all that we know about that person. They sum up who a person is as far as we know them. In God's case, all that God is 
cannot, of course, be known to finite creatures like ourselves. God remains the infinite mystery that we cannot sum up or pin down. But we can know the particular identity that God has given himself within the world so that people may know and relate to him. His name names that identity. The revelation of the name is a supreme act of God's grace, making himself accessible and knowable, making himself Israel's God. But is it, therefore, we might ask, a name only for Israel's use? Christians have often thought that. But at this point, we need to remember that God did not make himself Israel's God for the sake of Israel alone. He became Israel's God in order, thereby, to make himself the God of all nations. Especially in the prophets of the Old Testament, we find the expectation growing that in a great future act of salvation for his people, God will, so to speak, demonstrate his deity so that his people will know that he is the Lord and so that also the nations will recognize Israel's God as the one and only God and worship him themselves. The prophet Zechariah puts it like this, and the Lord will become king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. He goes on to describe the nations going up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord in the temple there. Now that rather arresting claim, the Lord will be one and his name one, it's an echo of another key text in the Old Testament known as the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Israel's confession of faith, in a sense. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Israel believed that their God was the one and only true God, creator of the world, and rightful ruler of the nations. So when Zechariah says that the Lord will become one, he means that all will acknowledge that Israel's God, the Lord, is the one and only God of all the earth. But notice carefully, he also says that the Lord's name will be one. The nations will not continue to use the many different names of their own gods. They will know God by the one personal name that identifies him as Israel's God and also the God of all the nations. Now, if as Christians we believe that these promises were fulfilled and are being fulfilled through Jesus Christ, then we might expect the New Testament to refer to the personal name of God. The New Testament writers make it abundantly clear that the God of Jesus, the God of Christian faith, of Jewish and Gentile believers alike is Israel's God, the God who revealed his name to Israel, not a new God, but the same God who spoke to Moses. So what becomes of the name in the New Testament? Before answering that question directly, I need to expand a little bit on what I said at the beginning about the Jewish practice of not pronouncing the name. Since, as I said, this practice was followed by Jesus and the apostles and by all the New Testament writers. 
By the time of Jesus, most Jews seem to have come to believe that the name should not be pronounced, except in the temple once a year at least on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest gave the priestly blessing to the people. We do not know for sure when or why the idea became dominant that the divine name should not normally be spoken. There are indications within the Old Testament itself that the practice of avoiding speaking the name um, was already affecting the composition of some of the Old Testament writings. The most plausible explanation, I think, is that the third of the Ten Commandments had a strong influence. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. No doubt the commandment especially forbids the careless or dishonest use of oaths sworn in the name of God. But it could also be taken to oppose the use of the name in magic. In ancient magic, all kinds of divine names were treated as having magical power, and the God of Israel did not escape that treatment in, uh, in, in magical use. The way the names were used in magic or simply the profane ways, profane ways of using the name without any reverence for the God whose name it was. Keeping the name secret protected it from such abuses. And once the practice of not speaking the name was common, it would have become a way of generally expressing reverence for God. His name was holy, and only the high priest within the holy confines of the sanctuary, his own holiness carefully ensured, was sufficiently holy to speak the holy name. However, we need to notice very carefully that while Jews in the time of Jesus generally did not speak the name, they frequently referred to it. When they read the scriptures, where the name, of course, was constantly appearing, they made use of recognized substitutes for the name. Um, no. I don't think I've got that slide. Um, anyway, most often they seem to have used in Hebrew the, the, the word Adonai and in Greek the corresponding Greek word kurios, which means Lord. Um, these are not, as is sometimes thought, translations of the divine name. They're not translations, they're substitutes for the divine name. They signal to the reader and hearers alike that the tetragrammaton occurred there in the text. And these substitutes were not only used when reading scripture, they were also used by authors writing Jewish literature. And when Jews prayed, they most commonly addressed God as Lord, not just as we might think, alluding to God's lordship, speaking as a servant to his Lord, but also referring reverently to the divine name. Without speaking the name, Jews continued what the Old Testament calls calling on the name of the Lord, calling him by the name he had given to enable that relationship with his people. So we should certainly not suppose that the name was forgotten. 
the peculiar feature of Jewish practice is that while the name was generally unspoken, it was a frequent subject of reference. And this is also true in the New Testament. For a start, usually when the word kurios, Lord, appears in quotations of the Old Testament, the word stands for the divine name. There are also explicit references to the name, and we'll see some of those in a moment. But I want to start with Jesus' own usage in the Gospels. There is one reference to the divine name um, in the teaching of Jesus that is very familiar indeed to virtually all Christians. Hallowed be your name is, of course, the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. In the Gospels, it's the first petition both in Luke's shorter version and Matthew's longer version of the prayer. Now that word hallowed, which the modern versions, many of the modern versions of the, of the New Testament still use that archaic word hallowed. It is uh, archaic. Uh, if we were guided at all by how the word hallowed is used at all in modern English, we would be misled. Um, in the Lord's Prayer, it's the passive of the verb to hallow. It means to treat as holy, to sanctify. The prayer means, may your name be treated as holy, may your name be sanctified. Now, I guess that to many Christians who use the words of this prayer regularly, it does not occur that the name to which Jesus referred is the Hebrew personal name that God revealed to Moses. They maybe take it as simply a metaphorical way of referring to God. May God be honored and reverenced. Now, that, that, that's true in a way. And the Old Testament does use the name of God to mean God's reputation or something of that sort. Um, so praise the name of the Lord means praise God. But it is, it is saying that by referring to God's name. It refers to God who is identified by his personal name. The name names God's identity. So in the Lord's Prayer, the hallowing of God's name means the reverent acknowledgement of the holy God whose name is the Tetragrammaton. Compare this passage from the prophets. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I display my holiness before their eyes. I will sanctify my great name, that's precisely what Jesus' prayer is asking God to do. Your name be hallowed. It's not some kind of wish that people will sanctify God's name. It's a prayer requesting God to sanctify his name, to bring it about that people acknowledge and reverence him. It's longing for that great act of salvation by which the prophets expected God would make himself known.
in, uh, in Jesus' prayer, your name be hallowed, stands parallel to your kingdom come. And in Matthew's version also to your will be done. Your, your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done. And all three of those petitions are qualified by the phrase, as in heaven, so on earth. Your name be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It goes with all three of the petitions. In, in heaven, all those things are true. But we pray for God to bring about the same, all three aspects um, on earth too. Now we might also compare this traditional Jewish prayer known as the Kaddish, um, exalted and hallowed be his great name in the world he created according to his will. May he establish his kingdom in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole household of Israel speedily and at a near time. Notice it, it conjoins as in the Lord's Prayer the hallowing of the name of God and the coming of the kingdom of God. Now, that version of the Kaddish is, as we have it, very much later than the New Testament period. I have to say that as a word of caution. Um, we can guess that something like that goes back to the time of Jesus. Um, but we don't know that those precise words do. But the hope Jesus expressed in his prayer was no different, essentially, from the hope of his Jewish compatriots and contemporaries, who regularly expressed that sort of um, request in prayer. So when Jesus said, your name be hallowed, no one would have any doubt that he's referring to the Hebrew personal name of God revealed to Moses. Now, after that, it comes as a surprise to find that in the words of Jesus in the Gospels, and leaving aside quotations from the Old Testament, Jesus never refers to God as Lord. He never uses that standard substitute for the Tetragrammaton. This is a remarkably consistent feature of the words of Jesus. And given the frequency of the use of Lord in other Jewish literature, it makes Jewish usage, as far as I'm aware, highly unusual or even unique. So if Jesus didn't refer to God as Lord, how did he refer to God? One way is the use of what is known as the divine passive. And the easiest way to explain this is by some examples. It's a way of attributing an action to God without directly saying so. So instead of saying God does X, one says X is done. It's a Jewish way of speaking that we can find in Jewish literature, but Jesus actually seems to have used it um, especially, uh, is, is you know, to, an, to, to a remarkable extent. Um, more than other Jewish literature, as far as I'm aware, Jesus made this practice of referring to God indirectly, um, a, a, a regular habit of speech. So blessed are those who mourn in the Beatitudes, for they shall be comforted. It means God will comfort them but it uses divine passive to say that. 
Now, sometimes scholars have said that this is a way of avoiding using the divine name. But of course, it's easy to avoid the divine name by saying God or Lord. The divine passive um, is not simply a way of avoiding the divine name. It's a way of protecting God's transcendence. It avoids making God directly the subject of an action in the world. But Jesus couldn't and didn't speak of God only by use of the divine passive. Quite often, he simply uses the word God, theos in our Greek gospels. And this is a perfectly normal Jewish way of speaking. God in the Hebrew Bible is often called Elohim, God, though far less often than he's called by the divine name. In later Jewish literature, there's a tendency to use God more often and the divine name less often. But we do also here need to remember something which is very rarely noticed, which is the, use, the usage of Jews who are speaking and writing Aramaic, because Jesus usually spoke not Hebrew, but Aramaic. And I haven't said anything about how the name, the divine name, was treated in Aramaic. This is a difficult subject because we do not have very much Jewish Aramaic literature from this period. But it seems that in Aramaic, Jews did not use the term Lord, in Aramaic the word Marah, as a substitute for the Tetragrammaton. The word Marah, or Marie, my Lord, is used of God and in address to God, but it is not a substitute for the divine name. To substitute for the divine name, Aramaic writers seem simply to have used the Aramaic word for God, Elah. So this may in part explain Jesus' usage. For example, take one of the most frequent key terms that Jesus uses, the kingdom of God. In Hebrew, one would expect that to be the kingdom of the Lord, using Lord as a substitute for the divine name. The Old Testament always talks about the Lord reigning, um, not God, not simply God. But Jesus speaking Aramaic says kingdom of God, using God as substitute for the divine name. However, I don't think that sufficiently explains Jesus' non-use of Lord for God. He didn't just use God instead of Lord. We need to remember alongside the divine passive, what is characteristic of Jesus' usage is the word father. Jews in this period occasionally called God father, but it was rare. Jesus seems to have privileged this word for God. And most interesting is the way that Jesus addresses God in prayer. According to the Gospels, Jesus always addressed God as Father, with the single exception of his cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, where Jesus is adopting the words of the psalm. But in every other case, 16 times, not counting parallels, the Gospels represent Jesus as praying to God as Father. And in addition, the prayer he gave to his disciples to use um, begins, as we know, simply, Father, 
in Luke's version, Our Father in Heaven in Matthew's version. This virtually exclusive use of Father to address God was certainly unusual. And the New Testament writers show that it was regarded as special and distinctive because they preserve the actual Aramaic word Jesus used, Abba. They're writing of Greek, of course, but they, on three occasions, um, preserve the word Abba. Mark preserves the Aramaic word Abba when he gives us um, Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. But also Paul says that Christians pray Abba, Father. That's in Paul's letter written in Greek to the Roman Christians, many of whom did not speak Aramaic. So early Christians must have thought that there was something very special about Jesus' use of this word Abba in prayer for them to continue to use this word even in contexts where Aramaic was not the, not the local language. I think this means, or perhaps I should say I suggest that Jesus, that I suggest this means that Jesus used the word Father as his own chosen substitute for the divine name, which was not spoken. I've never seen this suggested by anyone else, but it seems to me to make very good sense of Jesus' usage. Remember that the divine name was given to Israel especially so that God's people could address him by name, so that they could call on the name of the Lord in that frequent biblical phrase. Whereas Jews in Jesus' time standardly address God as Lord in Hebrew, or as God, my God, or our God in Aramaic, using those terms as substitutes for the name, Jesus chose instead to use Abba, Father. It's Jesus' substitute for the name. Not in the sense of replacing the name, of course, but in the sense of referring to the name while not actually speaking it. It's a novel means of reverent reference to the name of God. We could discuss at length why Jesus did that. But I want quickly, because I'm really running out of time, I started late. Um, I'm really running out of time. And I just want to say something about the use of the divine name by New Testament writers. Um, of course, they're all writing in Greek, and they use the Greek word Lord only very occasionally of God, except in Old Testament quotations. In Old Testament quotations, uh, Lord, kurios, is frequent as a substitute for the Tetragrammaton. Uh, quoting the Old Testament, New Testament writers do that. But apart from that, they only occasionally call God Lord. Usually they call God either God or Father. And this might appear to be a continuation of Jesus' usage, but in another respect, their usage is quite different from that of Jesus, because they do use the word kurios, Lord, frequently, but use it to refer to Jesus himself. So, for example, Paul, in those opening greetings of all his letters, uses the standard formula, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he regularly continues with a prayer addressed to God, sometimes also described as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we could say that the reason Paul does not call God Lord is that he reserves the term for Jesus. 
So what's going on when Jesus is called Lord? Now we need to remember the word Lord has a wide range of meaning in Greek. Basically, kurios Lord is a social superior. So it can sometimes be just a, a polite mode of address. It can just mean sir. And sometimes that's the case in the Gospels when people address Jesus as kurios, sir. They're people who know nothing of Jesus, but that's the polite way of addressing someone. Kurios can refer to an owner or an employer, a master, the master of a slave. Those kind of usages are quite common in the New Testament. But it can refer to a ruler and therefore to God as sovereign Lord, as uh, Lord of all things. And in that, in that sense, a substitute for the divine name. But this wide range of meaning makes it difficult to be sure when the word as applied to Jesus functions to refer to the divine name. But we can be sure that it does do so in quite a lot of cases. There are, for example, a considerable number of cases of Old Testament quotations in Paul and elsewhere in the New Testament, where in the Old Testament text, the word kurios, Lord, represents the divine name, and the New Testament writers read it as referring to Jesus. And there are also standard phrases adopted from the Old Testament, such as the word of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and very significantly, to call on the name of the Lord. Remember, that's what the divine name was principally for, to call on the name of the Lord. But that phrase in the New Testament means call on the name of the Lord Jesus. So for understanding that usage, um, and we're getting to the end now, this is the key text. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, therefore God also highly exhorted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow uh, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now notice first that that passage about Jesus in Paul echoes this passage in Isaiah where it's God, the one and only God, to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. So Paul takes the language of Isaiah about God, applies the same language to Jesus, and that I think is the key to his use of the divine name. When Paul says the name that is above every name, he refers to the Tetragrammaton, the name of God revealed to Moses. And this passage depicts the hallowing of God's name for which we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Hope of the prophets that God is going to sanctify his name in all the world for all the nations to call on the name of the Lord is fulfilled when Jesus is seen to be the revelation of God and therefore the one who shares the divine name with his father. I'll just refer, to, just refer briefly, I shan't talk about them because I haven't time, to two other 
key passages in the New Testament that speak of the divine name. No question, the Hebrew divine name given to Jesus. So in conclusion, we see how the revelation of the divine name to Moses was the beginning of a long story of the revelation of the name that is yet to reach its, its end. In giving himself the name, God made himself accessible and knowable to his people Israel. This was not for Israel's sake alone, but with a view to God's revelation of himself to all nations. By giving his name to Jesus, God indicates that it is in Jesus that he makes himself knowable and accessible to all people. God has a personal name that we acknowledge whenever we call Jesus Lord and whenever we pray to the Father for the hallowing of his name. Thank you.